At the end of the day, church is called to build up. Amen. We can knock things down, but we're called to build build up. That's Ephesians and if we 4. knock things down, we have to build something better on top of the rubble of the the idol that was taken down. Or yeah, because God gave us something better. I don't know if you guys remember the um, book, The Emergent Church. Do you remember that book? And that era of just church deconstructionism that was maybe like 15 years ago. It was very, just like on the rise. And who wrote that book again, Emergent Church? Uh, actually, Emergent Church was a group of people. It was like Brian McLaren. But he wrote the book, A New Kind of Christian. A New Kind of Christian, yep. And I remember we went to a lecture at GRTS, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and Ed Dobson was speaking. And he had this byline in his talk that was so powerful to me as he was speaking to the younger generation that was stepping into these kind of thoughts. And he just said, I know what you're against, but I don't know what you're for. So you can't just spend your life being against things. You want to focus your life on what, like you're saying, Rod and Preach. Shannon, like what, you, what you're building up, like what you're actually, of course you can say no to some things, but then you also have to say yes to some things. You don't just live in that no-ness in quote, air quotes, you know, just being no, 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 tear down, tear down, tear down. We want to know what you're for. And that's what the gospel is all about, is being for building new creation, not just tearing down old. Yeah. Yeah. Health, healthy anything, healthy people, healthy families, healthy marriages, healthy churches, healthy businesses, all have convictions that they're for. They're for things, and they stand for those things. They live into those things that they're for. They preach those things, and they assess themselves constantly, which does involve, okay, we do have to deconstruct this right now because right now we've gotten outside of what we're actually for, so let's take this down, and then let's rebuild what we're supposed to be. Yeah, and that takes a lot more work because if you just deconstruct for the sake of deconstructing, then uh, it's pretty effortless to throw stones from a glass house. Armchair quarterback, speaking of <laughs> sports and the Lions, and that's what it means to be an armchair quarterback is to assess a situation and just say what should be, but to not actually get out of your chair and do something. Crossroads amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome to the table, Shannon. Shannon Popkin is with us, and uh, we're so excited to have you. Um, you've written a Bible study on the the few chapters that we've been diving into. Shannon, I think that we're so blessed to have you as a part of our church. For and sure, I know that you've you. um, your life work is actually studying God's Word and then enabling it to be pushed out mm-hmm. through other people so that they can experience. Uh, the benefits of what you've already studied. And I know you've done a great job being a part of our women's ministry and you've spoken a few times to us and we get to have you right here as a part of our um, nation of priests, priesthood of believers here. Mm -hmm. And you get to add your gifts to the mix of what we have going on here at Crossroads. So tell us what, because we're all in this Abraham, Sarah, Genesis Mm -hmm. journey in this section of the book. And I know that you focused on Sarah, Mm-hmm. And you focused on her role in the story that we have. Mm-hmm. And so um, we haven't actually gotten to a lot of Sarah's story. That'll come out in like the next chapters. But just as a way of introduction to Sarah, like what drew you to Sarah? What made you think, oh, I want to write a book on this or a Bible study. Actually, it's not a book. I want to write a Bible study on this character, Sarah. Yeah. Well, originally I wrote a book called Control Girl. It's a about control and surrender. And my chapter on Sarah was just like, oh my word, there's so much more here. And I just wanna, I wanna dive into this more. I wanna study her more. Um, But I'm so taken with the idea of God's promises in Sarah's story, you know? Um, Genesis, as we've been talking about, is an origin story, right? Mm -hmm. And so the first part of the book is the origins of creation. But the second part, or the second book of Genesis, um, it's like Moses is talking to the people of God, like this, this comes like 500 years or so after Abram and Sarah, Sarai. And um, so this is their origin story. Moses is right. How did we become the people of God? Well, it all started with God's promises. Genesis 12, you know, Rod, you and I have talked about how like, there's a lot of marriage imagery Mm. in this story. And Genesis 12, God is saying, I will, I will, I will. And Mm. it's not because 
they've come and, and, you know, gotten God's attention or they've proven themselves faithful. No, they're, they're pagans, like we've said, right? <laughs> they're, they don't know God. And yet God just shows up out of the blue. Like this is like the blind date phase of the relationship. They it's don't know him. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And he shows up. I mean, Ken and I met on a blind date. And I can't imagine if on that blind date, he's like, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to go get packed. I'll tell you where to go. We're getting married. Like <laughs> That would have been a little aggressive. And yet that's how God shows up. And, he do, and, and so there's this pattern at, for the people of God. How do we become God's people? It all starts with God expressing these lavish promises. You know, mm. I will, I will, so I good. will. And then they respond. So we don't we don't come to faith by us doing great things. We come by responding to his great promises. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, so that's Hey, I'll stand on that. Yeah, that's that's what we see here. Um they're they're just responding and, and like we've been talking, they're responding in an active way. Right. One step after another after another. And it's it's a it's a journey of faith, but um, yeah, that's for us too. Like we, I like to think of God's promises as a set of parentheses. You know, you never have one parenthesis without the other, right? Correct. They always come in pairs. So here's here's a promise from God, and we know it's going to be fulfilled. But often there's this long stretch between, right? Yeah. I mean, and I watch the way that we as Christians we we don't like to to deal with that long stretch no. in between. Have you ever noticed like the songs we sing and the even the memes we use, like we jump jump from Genesis three to Matthew twenty seven, like that. Yes. I mean, just think if we took that big chunk out mm. of our Bibles, like just took it out, tore it out, like we'd have a much thinner. But that's kind of what we like to do. We like to go from sin, like Genesis three is sin, and them being excused from the garden, driven out, the divorce, right? And then Genesis twenty seven. Well, that's the cross. That's the solution to the problem. We just like to get there. Mm. We want to skip to the good part. But what what I think is this stretch between the promises, like why do we even need the story of Sarah and Abraham? Like what's what's it all about? Like why did God spend thousands of years before he, you know, he he made the promise of a savior? Why spend all those thousands of years? And what I see in that long stretch is God proving his faithfulness. Like we don't get faithfulness in a minute. You know, if I were to show you a picture of my husband on the first day I met him, and say, here's a faithful man, you'd be like, that's weird. He's not faithful. You don't even know him yet, (laughs) right? But if after 27 years, I show you his photo and say, he's been faithful in this marriage relationship, in this covenant of him keeping his promise to me, well, that makes more sense. Wow. And that's that's what we get in this story. It's a a long stretch between the parentheses. This is profound. This reminds me of a talk that you give when you're in Israel on discipleship Mm. and how... You love the creeds. You always say you love the creeds, but yeah. they, it rushes right to the cross. Mm. And oh, yeah. the gap in between is discipleship, yeah. yeah, which is a call to comp- pick up you know, your life and follow Christ yeah. with everything that you have. But also, like we run in terms of the story from Genesis 3 to Jesus in the New Testament. And we're missing over. We're, <coughs> we're jumping over so much good stuff. Yeah, this Not, is the good part. This is the good part. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm even thinking right now about the God being faithful. And when God came to Moses because Moses said, you've shown me so much. You've given me your will. You've given me your word. I've even experienced your presence, but I need to see your face. Mm-hmm. I want to know what you look like. I want to know you in that intimate way. God says, it'll kill you. <laughs> so let me hide you in a cleft of a rock but let me show you my back parts, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And then as he's passing by, he speaks to Moses, says the Lord, the Lord. Yeah. And he sa- has all these wonderful statements about himself, uh, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And then right in the heart of what he says, because it's a chiasm, which is that sandwich, which takes you to the meat. He says, I'm faithful. Mm. He is a faithful God, and he wants us to know that he's faithful mm-hmm. in word and in deed. Mm-hmm. Can yeah. I just read that verse really quickly? Because it's one of my favorites. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving sin and transgressions. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the gener- children's children, children to the third and fourth generation. Can you tag the reference on that? Yeah, that's Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithful. And Rod, just really quickly, as you mentioned a chiasm, but not everybody might know what a chiasm is. And that's just a literary device that we see in the Bible a lot, where there's like two brackets that kind of move towards the center. And you see it like a V-shape almost with two endings that kind of come to a pinnacle in a literary sense, in the actual words that are written. And then the center of that is the meat, like Rod said, of the sandwich that God really wants to highlight or be his exclamation point of who he is. Yeah. Such a beautiful verse. I yeah, love Yeah, when we talked about that um, in the Tower of Babel story, that, that story in, yeah. nine, in nine verses is a, is a chiasm. Mm-hmm. And the center of that is, the, and then the Lord God came down. And it's drawing your attention to that act of God, which... Again, goes back to what you what you said, Shannon. God is initiating this relationship. Mm. The Lord comes down and initiates this relationship. Hey, this is who I am, and I'm going to be faithful to you. I love that how you put that. I will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will do this. I will do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most proposals start with "Will you?" but no, I will. And mm. and He wants for us to respond to these promises. They shape our whole lives, right? If you think of how you first came to God. Was it not responding to one of his promises, like a promise for forgiveness or a promise for eternal life? Or maybe you're responding to like the, the somberness of his promise for judgment, right? But you're responding. That's that's the initial so response. Good. Yeah. Tell us when the Bible study is coming out. Sure. It's coming out in July, uh, published by Our Daily Bread. The title is Shaped by God's Promises, Lessons from Sarah on Fear and Faith. Awesome. Can't wait to get my hands on that. Thank you so much for taking the time to dig and then provide the church body with such a great resource. It's a joy. Yeah, it's such an amazing character in the Bible that we can all actually relate to. And I love what you said, too, about the parentheses and about all the time that we get to actually read and study and almost digest who God is Mm -hmm. through his promises. And it doesn't just rush the story. On the flip side of that, I love the kindness of God that he shows us all of these earthly characters yeah. and how they follow and how they fail. Yeah. And so yeah. in the midst of um, him showing us that as humans, all these characters throughout all this time are going to have high peaks yeah. and low valleys, my promises are going to stay the same. Yeah. Like they're not dependent on how you, so we get to actually see the faithfulness of God in spite of human unfaithfulness throughout the story. And to me, that's very encouraging. Yeah. It's not contingent. Yeah. There's not like when we see these dips, like we saw with in Egypt or we're going to see in Genesis 16, Sarah's horrible to Hagar. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> I'm preaching on that next week. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> She's horrible. She's horrible. Mm. Yeah, and I I mean I Can we back up though before we yeah. get to that story? Okay. What's Sarah up to before we get yeah, to well, this monumental okay. moment? Do it chronologically, sure. Is that okay? Yeah. Absolutely. Sorry. I know we had momentum there, but I wanna I wanna set the table yeah. because yeah. I think it gives us more of a flavor of what the walk of faith really is like, right? Mm-hmm. I got too excited. About okay. Genesis 16. <laughs> well, I understand that. <laughs> no, yeah. So what? before we get to this kind of monumental failure in Sarah's life, and Abram for that sake, mm-hmm. um, what? Yeah, what's Sarah's role in this, Sarai, at this point? What's her role in the, the narrative? Well, we're introduced to her in Genesis 11.30 as Sarah was barren. She had no child, Sarai. And I mean, that's... I don't think we totally get how devastating that was. I agree. Um, there's this book, Misreading Scripture Through the Lens of Individualistic Eyes or something like that. Um, and the, the author's talking about how he lives in the Middle East and he's in this taxi and he says, the taxi driver says, are you married? Yeah, three years. Any children? No. Oh, I'm so sorry. Here's the name of my fertility specialist. And he's like, I hadn't said that we were struggling. Like we actually were choosing to wait to have a baby, but that makes that does not compute in the no. Middle East. Um, marriage is for children. Like love is optional. Yeah. You know, but marriage, like the whole reason you're getting married is to have children. Uh, and so for Sarah to be barren, 
Like that, that was her reason for being married. Like this was such a burden. And so to be introduced as she's like the brittle branch on the family tree. Yeah. I think shame. I think you can push it even further than that. In that world, that's her reason for existence. Mm. Not even just for marriage. Yeah. Her worth, her value is all tied to being able to bear children. Yeah. So her being barren means that she really is in many ways looking at herself as a total failure. Yeah. Her net worth is reduced to how many children has she produced. I think if we were to try to get a cultural like norm or, or parallel for today, it might be like a woman who is obese and severely scarred and bald and, unemployed and homeless like that would yeah. you know that would maybe translate so i mean she just she has nothing in her life and and now there are these promises piled on to that barrenness that she is i mean it's not explicit god doesn't say yet through sarah you'll have a child but he promises them that they'll become a nation and so that's that's definitely assumed and so Sarah feels the burden of all this on her shoulders. She's, she's, it's promised that they will have a child, and yet she can't do that. Yeah. And do you know how old she is? Like when the promise first comes, what's her age? Like is she 23 and on the cusp of childbearing she's years? She's 65. Or? Okay. Um, and, you know, by the time she has the baby, she'll be 90. But it, it's like our... I've, That's I've, wild. I know. Our... Their ages were about double ours, so I've heard, yeah. I don't know what you guys think, but perhaps like about half that age is what, so she's still, it's still, she's still in the age of childbearing age at 65. She'd be like 30. So what you're saying is that their lifespan was so much longer that they kind of measure, like yeah, childbearing yeah. years yeah, might yeah. be a little yeah. bit later than ours. Yeah. But think about that, what you just said in the parenthesis of that. Like she, she what, you said 65, mm-hmm. and then by the time she has the baby, she's 90. So you're talking about 25 years 25 still years. after mm-hmm. the promise of not actually seeing the fulfillment. And mm-hmm. maybe that's why, and we're not going to jump ahead, maybe that's why she gets a little bit impatient. Yeah. It's yeah. a long time well, to think wait. about the pain. If I, And I like the word picture that you you translate it into a, our modern context. But think about living that existence daily for 25 years. Well, and think about you're that obese, scarred, whatever woman, and somebody has promised that you're going to be Miss America. You know? I mean, that's a lot of pressure. Like, you can't do that, right? It's it's out of your control. Yeah. that's She's in a very out-of-control situation. Yeah. And I think barrenness in our context, too, is a pain. It is. Yeah. And not to minimize right. it. Right. But but in this culture, because a woman's significance and worth is so attached to it. Mm-hmm. And then what you just said, all God's promises to Sarai and Abram, they're both in this together, yeah. are dependent on her having a child. Mm-hmm. That's how they're gonna, God's going to give them a great name, a great family, mm-hmm. a great people. And then the promised son, the Messiah who's going to come. Yeah. And so for if we get in her shoes... For 25 years mm-hmm. of every day, like dealing with this pressure, trauma mm-hmm. of when's it going to happen? Yeah. Is it ever going to happen? Mm-hmm. And then if you stay in her shoes and when they go down to Egypt, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of hurt that she has there. And I don't know if it's hurt that she's just putting completely on her husband, Abram, who pimped her mm-hmm. to Pharaoh yeah. to protect himself. Mm-hmm. Is she mad at God? Mm-hmm. Like, what? what is this whole journey about of faith? They get back, they get settled, and still no son. Yeah. And she's feeling all the pressure. So that's kind of the setup for Genesis 16. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you, if you look at that story in Genesis 12 of Egypt, I mean, her husband was not faithful to her, and yet... God was keeping his promises to her, to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever is dishonoring to you, I will curse. So like she's being, her marriage is being dishonored and God showed up, you know, like Protected that's, her. that's a beautiful story of, yes. of God. God kind of became promise. her husband in yeah, that sense, did what did. Abraham didn't or Abram didn't. He did. And yeah. Abram did repent. 
Yeah. We see signs of repentance. Yeah. He returned. He ran to Bethel. Yes, right? yeah. ran mm-hmm. to the arms of God. Yeah, yep. Yeah, and this is this this really sets us up well for getting to chapter fifteen because now not only obviously is Sarai in pain, but Abram's in pain, and he's not just in pain; he's angry, and he's angry with God mm-hmm. because he doesn't understand why. Not only has the greater promise not been fulfilled, but the first domino that right. has to fall hasn't yeah. even fallen yet. And uh, yeah, he comes to <laughs> he comes to the Lord. Actually, he doesn't come to the God Lord. God comes to him. Which is funny that I just said that because I preached the very opposite <laughs> that on Sunday. But no, God comes to him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Almost like I'm here. Again. Do you want to talk to me? <laughs> Yeah. You want to say how you feel? <laughs> have you ever done I, I that? Can as a, that? Have you guys ever done that as parents? Where, because um, my kids are young enough that we, I haven't had any of those interactions. But have you done that as a parent, where you know that your kid is stewing in their room, and so you just decide, I'm going to go up there and talk to him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's for good. Sure. It's exactly. I'm always like, Rod, go up there, go up there. You should talk to them. <laughs> yep, I loved it. Yeah, I loved going into those situations. I don't know why. But as a parent, you can sense that, right? Yeah. You can sense it for sure. You don't know what you're going to get when you walk in the room. But I'm just saying, if we who are earthly and just human beings can sense that, how much more can God sense that in the life of Abram? Yeah. Yeah. And it just shows he is our father. And he comes to Abram, and the first thing out of his mouth is, do not be afraid. Mm. Yeah. And you think about that phrase, I mean... It's all, it's, it's littered through scripture. And then it's all over the words of Jesus in the New Testament. What do you think he'd be afraid of? Why, why does God say, do not be afraid? He could have said, do not doubt. I think fear drives doubt. I think there's something scary about him. I mean, in a, I think that the fear of the Lord is something that is good and proper. We see that all over the text especially in the Psalms, but I think when you, you see God in a vision, I think there's something that causes you and your humanness mm-hmm. when you're looking at the holy to tremble, be afraid, or not measure up. I mean, maybe that's not correct, Rod, but we see that response um, when the Lord shows up all the time. Many times, his, or even the angel of God, the first thing they say is, do not be afraid. We see that with the shepherds when they come to the um, the angels come to the shepherds. We see that when Gabriel comes to Mary, do not be afraid. We see that when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, um, their first thing many times that they say is do not be afraid. So it makes me think that there's something supernatural and holy about what they're seeing that causes us and our humanists to respond in a fearful way. Yeah, no, it it's hard to know. It could be the moment or it could be as Abram's looking at his situation it's hard to know what god's addressing yeah he talks about though i'm your shield Mm -hmm. so you know he's being shielded i mean this is like we're about what 10 years into them living in the in the promised land and uh things aren't changing you know and the canaanites are still there Mm -hmm. and there's still no baby and this is getting long you know like when you're in that long stretch like fear does take over. Like, is yeah. this, what, what, what am I going to do now? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm your shield and I'm your very great reward. Yeah. Like I'm your pearl of great price. That's what this is about, Abram. It's not about even my promises as good as they are. God wants relationship. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that relationship requires trust. And I can think of so many times in my life where I've been confident that God had called me into a certain circumstance or situation only to arrive there with boldness and confidence and then wait and then wait and then wait and end up in a season of utter fear. Like, did I just make a mistake? Did Mm -hmm. I mishear your voice? And now what is going to be the consequences of me acting out what I thought was your call, Lord? You got to show up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and we all have experiences like that. So God does. He shows up. And I even think about, I mean, let's just go there for a second. Think about you planning even this church rod. I know that there's for sure times in your life where, and Libby, you're a big part of that too. 
Just but like Sarah's a big part. Exactly. A full part. Exactly. A full part. You guys are doing this together. But when you planted the church, did you ever have times? Because you were confident, okay, this is what God's calling us to do. But did you ever have moments years into it where you were going like, what in the world are we doing? And did we even hear the voice of God? I had those moments leading up to the church plant. Mm-hmm. And because those moments were so profound. Of fear? Yeah, I mean, there was crazy stuff going on. Uh, not just fear, but questioning. Yeah, is questioning. this the right thing? Yes. So you look at circumstances and you feel God's call, but then you see some circumstances that don't shape out the way maybe you thought they would, and then you question. And we had you had a lot of those. I remember yeah. driving back and forth from Chicago where several times you'd be like, I don't think this is the right thing. I don't think this is the right thing. And then talking it through and just really praying yeah, get, so we had ahead, yeah. so much of that before the church was planted that God assured us in the process leading up to that, that when we planted the church, that actually gave us the confidence and the trust in God that sustained us through a lot more crazy. Yeah. But my question then is, what got you through the fear? The call of God. God being real and his call being real. Yep. And when you can discern a real God with a real call, which is what's going on with Abraham and Sarah, God has been real to them and he's put real call on their lives. It might look crazy to the world. Like our little crazy of playing a church doesn't even compare to the crazy that Abram and Sarah are trusting God. The call is just amazing. But when it's real, you go, you trust. Exactly. Well, and the reason that I say there is because God doesn't show up and say something crazy to Abram. He just reaffirms what Abram already knows about the promise. He's like, hey, Eliezer of Damascus, your servant, he's not going to be your heir, okay? I've already <laughs> told you this, mm-hmm. but, and I just, that ministers to me because I think sometimes in those moments of deep doubt and fear, we want God to show up in a huge monumental way. And he really doesn't, this isn't, super extraordinary obviously the lord comes to him in a vision but what he says to him is very telling which is just i'm going to remind you that which you already know that which i've already promised you in your words shannon i will i will right. i will yeah so if you're still wondering if i will look up yeah i love look that at he, the stars he points him to something tangible tangible right? and then look mm. down look yeah. at the sand yeah yeah something very tangible so every time and he looks up he can look at something tangible and say thank okay that's God's promise to me, every time he looks down at the dirt, the sand, he can say, oh, that's the tangible promise of God to me. Yeah. And I love that you pointed out, like, he's looking up at creation. You know, if God can create all of these stars, certainly he can create a nation from this barren couple, right? He is the God who creates. All he has to do is speak a word. And that's what I, I was trying to create the dichotomy because I think that we get so consumed and I'm the first one that is constantly repenting of my dopamine addiction to my phone, email, whatever. And, and when, I, when I'm consumed with my phone, it's such a small device, but it has such great capability to make me believe that I'm in control of my life because mm-hmm. I could do so many things so efficiently. And so there's this great temptation to think like, but then when that, when that happens, it makes the world feel small. It makes you feel constantly anxious because now you are God. But when you when you step outside of that and you actually consider creation, it immediately puts you back into your proper place in the universe, which is <laughs> I'm just this tiny little person. God cares for me deeply, mm-hmm. but I'm not in control. Mm-hmm. And so I have a question for you, Shannon. Yeah. You made a wonderful connection there between the stars and the promises and God. Mm-hmm. Ha, have have you had your own personal experience with God through the stars? Yeah, I mean, I love looking up just at the vastness of it, especially when you're out in the country and you know you don't have the city lights, and just imagining like this. There's so much more than I can see. Like, you know, we have the Hubble telescopes now. Like we we can see more than Abraham could, um, and yet there's I can't. Like, it's so vast. I love that feeling of smallness, like you said. Mm. And yet, I, even as small as I am, I am seen and known and loved by God. And I'm part of these great and precious promises. Like, they are a reminder. 
you know, a tangible reminder that I'm part of this family. Yeah. I, growing up, I, I had that experience with the stars. Mm. Like my relationship with God, we lived in the country. So I had regular moments as a kid, a high schooler, even then in college, every time I, I saw the stars, I was just reminded of what David says in Psalm 8. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, who am I? What am I? Yeah. But then, this is what I am. That God that made those stars also made yeah. me. Mm-hmm. So I know it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but yeah. I liked it. No, but those are those transcendent moments that we actually need to put ourselves in. You know, we're, 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 we're around artificial things all the time that when you step into something organic, like God's creation and it's you and you can see nothing artificial or man-made, there's something stunningly beautiful about that. To just finish it, when I was in Israel studying and we would go on site, so every weekend I'd be away. And this was a weekend when we were in the desert where Abram lived. Mm-hmm. And we're driving to our place, it's a long day of study. It's dark and our bus breaks down. And I, we get out of that bus and I look up and I can't even believe what I see. The stars were just brilliant. And to think Abram had probably that sight every day mm-hmm. in the desert, because it just doesn't rain much there. Yeah. <laughs> every day of just being able to look up at the brilliance of the stars and be reminded of the promise of God mm-hmm. and what you said, the greatness of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a really cool Bedouin um, idiom that talks about- It's a Bedouin. So a Bedouin is a nomad shepherd and Abraham would be considered a Bedouin. There's still Bedouin in Israel today. But one of the things that they had, they used to have these dark black camel hair tents. So when you'd be in the tent during the day, you'd see little flickers of light coming through the fibers of the camel hair black tents. And so then when the Bedouins go out at night and the sky is black and you see the little stars, the flickers of light coming through the fabric of the night, they say we're all a member of God's tent. Mm -hmm. We're all in God's family. I just think that's really cool. But I love in the text where... Um, it says in Genesis, which we just studied, he talks about all his creation and then talking about the stars, he said, and he created the stars also as if they're just like an afterthought. (laughs) Like those are the smallest little things that he flings out, just kind of a decoration, like the cherry on the Sunday or the icing on the cake. He Mm -hmm. created the stars also. Mm -hmm. And to us, they're, they're amazing and they're big and they're vast. And to God, that's, that's like the smallest thing he can do he can do so much so much so many great things and the text says he just created the stars also and then he names them all and all the things that we know about the stars but just beautiful so then going into genesis 15 here's a god who comes to abram says i will i will i will Mm -hmm. he knows where abram is just like you put so profoundly trig like we know when our kids are up in their room stewing and they're mad (laughs) Right? So God, like the good parent, comes up there and like, you know, makes his presence known. (laughs) And then all of this leads to Abram kind of venting. You know, Mm -hmm. I still walk. I walk childless. You told me to walk. I did my part. What about you, God? Are you going to come through on this or not? And at some point, you know, God says, trust me. And Abram says, trust me. But then it's like Abram says, I still need proof. Mm. And then we know the story as you preach this weekend, he tells him to get these five animals, which by the way, he never tells Abram what to do with those five animals, which is a huge clue to mm-hmm. Abram knows what God's wanting to do here. Mm-hmm. He's going to take the I will to, he's going to take the engagement, the proposal to marriage. Yeah. This right? Is, yeah. What, what's interesting is our, our uh, idea of walking the aisle it's rooted in this covenant. You know, they walked the aisle between those pieces. Yeah. So basically God's saying, when he says, get these five animals, Abram knows. Yeah. Abram, create the aisle. Mm-hmm. And what's the aisle? The aisle is an aisle of blood. Yeah. And this isn't like some strange foreign concept no. to them. Even to this day, marriages are still done with the slitting of with the an throat aisle. of an animal and mm-hmm. the blood. And that's the aisle that, you know, that they create because covenants in this day as you said trig are cut Mm -hmm. you know we say 
you know, let's cut a deal. They are literally cutting a deal in blood. Is that where that idiom comes from? It is. Yeah, let's cut a deal. And it goes all the way back to like, let's cut this in blood. Yeah. And like Rod said, still in, this is all part of that Bedouin culture. And you said they still do that today, specifically in the Bedouin tribal nomadic people groups of those Arabian deserts. That's that's what you're referring to. They still do that today. They yeah. still sacrifice an animal? No, they they'll s- have a, they'll, at the, I know this because the person who, my rabbi, Ray Vanderlaan, who studied there, he had a weekend where he made friends with a Bedouin and a Bedouin took him home and there happened to be a wedding that weekend. Mm. And he went to a Bedouin wedding ceremony and right in the middle of the ceremony, uh, the patriarch of the bride and the patriarch of the groom got up and again, in that culture, the patriarch of the groom is the greater party. The patriarch of the bride is the lesser party. Um, so, and the lesser party has to bring the animals. So he had the, the lamb in his hand and the greater party, the patriarch or the groom, brought the, the terms of the covenant, of the marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lesser party then cuts the throat right there in the wedding ceremony, the lamb. Mm-hmm. They collect the blood. They pour it on the ground. Now, again, that lamb will be part of the, the reception to follow. They're yeah, going to enjoy yeah, it mm-hmm, and eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a covenant meal that follows the covenant ceremony. But uh, then the greater party is the first to put his feet in the blood to say, if my, my son or my grandson does not keep the stipulations of this covenant by being a faithful husband, may he be cut to pieces. Wow. And No, may you be no, cut to pieces. the patriarch yeah, the is father. Saying, I, may I be cut to wow. pieces. And then... The and aren't night, they looking at each other in the eyes when they're doing this, when they're walking through yeah, the aisle? Yeah, and like, they, don't even, they don't have to say anything. They're not like, this is... Just they by know. putting their feet in the blood, they're saying to other person, if my grandson or son does not keep, is not faithful, mm. then you may cut me to pieces. And then after he's done, then the father or patriarch of the bride, it's his turn, and he just puts his feet in the blood. And he doesn't have to say anything, but by putting his feet in the blood, he's saying, if my daughter or granddaughter doesn't you know, remain faithful, so, so they're can, staking their life on the behaviors of their children. Wow. And I mean, we always say, think about if we did marriage this way today, like <laughs> if I felt like I was unfaithful and my dad would be killed or, you know what yeah. I'm saying? It's definitely a communal responsibility and caring for each other. It's totally less individualistic than we think we all have our rights yeah. and our right to be happy today. And that's just an aside, but it's a beautiful picture of living in community like that and your sins affecting your whole community, not just the you covenant. individually. And yeah. we're back into faithfulness. Mm-hmm. Faithfulness yeah. is so important. Yeah. But, I mean, the fact that God's the only one who walked that aisle, you know, like that, like imagine if we were at a wedding and the groom was the only one who walked the aisle and the bride didn't even get herself cleaned up. You know, he's speaking these covenant promises and she's not even... She's asleep, right? That's just, we, we would have things to think about that. We would wonder things, right? And so that, that's supposed to be our reaction to this story where, you know, this is just uncustomary that not both parties went through that aisle of blood. When you got one sentence in, I got chills. Because that is just stunning to think about. Mm-hmm. That God basically said, Abram, you're not walking in that blood. Yeah. I'm going to walk in that blood, not just once, but twice and the second time in your place. Mm-hmm. You will not be cut to pieces for your failure or your family's failure or your family's 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 failures. Mm-hmm. It'll all be on me. Yeah. You said it in your sermon. Yeah. You know, if you, if you fail, that's on me. If I fail, that's on me, right? It's so scandalous that it's uncomfortable in my pharisaical heart to even receive that. Like, I don't yeah. want to receive that. Because <laughs> if I can remain in some sort of position of control in this relationship where I actually, where my actions determine my righteousness, then I have a reason to look down my nose at other people when they aren't living up. But if I am put mm-hmm. in the position where I'm absorbed into this covenant promise and I just like Abram, I'm sleeping while God does a good work for me. How, how are you not humbled by that? 
But I want to take this a step further because this is why faith is so much more than just an intellectual ascent. Because it's interesting to me that in verse 8, Abram, the thing that sets this whole covenant ceremony up is Abram saying, how can I know? Yeah. How can I know? Which sounds like something that you do with your mind. But the way God responds to that question is through a picture, like an embodied experience. Does that, I mean, that to me ministered to me because it's like God could have just, you know, we're Westerners. We like the intellect. We're mm-hmm. post-enlightenment. Yeah, God doesn't give them a proposition. <laughs> exactly. Okay, here's the proposition, <laughs> and this proposition is why you can know. Literally, too, and I, this is hitting me right now. Abram, literally how it reads, Ariana V says, he says to God, I remain childless, but it literally says, I walk childless. And to think, okay, Abram, you think you're the only one walking right now? Mm. And you don't think I'm not going to walk on behalf of you? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's create the aisle because I'm going to walk through it. I'm going to walk on down that way once but twice. Well, and think, reverse that out. Like, what if we are the one who has to walk the aisle? What if we are the one? Like, what does that lead to? Like, what if the Bible is a story about people who try harder, do better, and get the promises, you know, they achieve them for themselves. Well, then what do we become? We become self-reliant. You know, we become self-assured. We, we don't need, Se- need God. Bitter. You Self- become bitter. You, know, you become self-righteous. Yeah. So, we, all those self right? yeah, yeah. self-exalting. And by the way, you have to. Yeah. That's the only result that works yeah. if you do that. You can e- you either become depressed because you look at your life and you go, <laughs> I'm condemned, or you become arrogant. There's, those yeah. are your only two choices. And you're left being a very critical person because you have to be. You have to be very judgmental. You have to knock other people down right. to make yourself feel good. You have to you have to take control. And like I think of, you know, we're talking about generations that are come that are gonna come after. You know, one of my I love control. I want to control the outcomes. And one of the thing that things that I wrestled with is my kids. I wanted them. Like if I could have gotten the pen to God's book of life and gotten my kid's name in there, yeah. I mean, that that was so important to me. And yet, what if it was up to me? You know, yeah. what what kind of controlling mom would I be if it was all up to me? No, this is from start to finish. This is God. God, it's all God. Making the promises, keeping the promises. And we're just the ones who, we're the recipients. I know. We're the responders. Tim Keller, for this, what you're saying, says this is the most important text in the Bible, Genesis 15. And he says, because every other worldview, religion, including agnosticism, atheism, all demand of us that we walk between the pieces. Mm that it's all about us. It's about our effort. It's about our righteousness, about our performance. And when we blow it, it's on us and we have to pay for it. And he's like, only with this God do we have a God who actually walks between the pieces in the blood for Mm -hmm. us in our place. And that doesn't mean then that we don't walk. So I got a question for the table then. It means we get to walk. Exactly. I got a question. How does this worldview actually lead to transformation and not license to do whatever we want. Because the skeptic is sitting here going, but come on, what do you, what, this, what do you mean? What this, do you mean that God, you know, what do you mean God walks through the pieces both times? What do you mean there's nothing, it's, it's not up to us. So how does this worldview actually lead to transformation? Because this is something we've talked about a lot, Rod. Like, I don't just believe that the gospel saves us. I think the gospel is the thing that continues to transform us. Absolutely. It's the transforming power in our life. I think the Bible actually affirms that as well. I don't think that's just some theological idea. Yeah. But how can we know that? The last words that Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. I did it. Mm-hmm. I did what you could never do. And then if you ask, why did he do it? What's the why behind that what? is because he loves us, because he loves us, because he loves us. And when that burns in a person's heart, it sets them free to actually just love God and to walk with God and to walk like God, even though we're going to make mistakes, uh, because we get to, Mm -hmm. because this God's so awesome. Well, I think, too, we see a lot of situations where people are not transformed, right? Yeah. 
And that also is good news, right? That that the, it's not contingent on our behavior, right? Um, we we get to, but yet it is. He's the one who walked through the pieces. He it's it's contingent on him, and but being shaped by God's promises that means that we are um, you know I mean we're going to see in Sarah's story she's going to turn to self reliance and it's going to go very badly mm-hmm. and and we're going to hear her have this bitter laughter even when God comes again to her tent and you know restates the promise in a year you're going to have a son she's going to ha- have this scoffing kind you're of you're so know, like right this. it's not just laughter it's bitter laughter it's bitter laughter and then. We're going to see her transformed, though, because she truly believes that promise. I know. I mean, Genesis 21, I know I'm getting way ahead of us. But, no, that's all right. But, but Genesis 21, um, she has a child, and she names him Laughter. And what comes before that, though? In that year, between when God comes and says, in a year you're going to have a son, and the, the next chapter where she has the baby, I mean, imagine the faith it took after life a lifetime of infertility, you know, and she is 89 years old. Imagine yeah. the faith of saying, I want to try for a baby. Like, do you, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like there, that is, I always kind of was skeptical of Sarah being included in Hebrews 11, you yeah. know, the hall of faith. I think that took extraordinary faith. And, and so that's where we see this transformation. She is She's not walking through those pieces. This is not her keeping her promise to God. She is responding to his promises yeah. to her. She's receiving it. Yeah. Yeah. But even what God asks of her is more than just like have this head knowledge trust. Yeah. It's it's an act of faith. <laughs> it's like, because she says, am I actually going to have pleasure again with my <laughs> yeah. husband? Yeah. It's not pleasure of having a child. And you know what God says? It's, yeah. Yep. Trust me and have sex with your husband. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Which is Hallelujah. a wonderful thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, but I think but what it's you're a walk. S- it's a walk that he's asking her to do. That faith by living it out. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying, Shannon, too, is like how many times did they have sex and it not produce? Yeah, like in all those years, how many times? Did she put herself out there again? Because mm-hmm. to her, obviously, sex is enjoyable because she says, am I going to have pleasure again? But like you said earlier, the goal of being married and having sex is to have children. So in her like 89 years and maybe the last 50 of having sex, like how many times am I going to put myself out there for disappointment again and again and again and keep trusting? And that's what you're saying. Like she's stepping into that act again, risking disappointment, but mm-hmm. just saying, God, I'm just going to keep doing this faithfully, trusting that you're going to produce a child. Wow. Which, by the way, is w- where we, this is where we started getting into the realm of what faith, what faith yeah. really is, yeah. because we, we've kind of glossed over verse six, which is kind of the linchpin of this whole text, which is mm-hmm. Abram believed, believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. So why Sarah in that hall of faith in Hebrews 11? Because although there is not another verse that it says Sarah believed the Lord, she believed the Lord. She and did. it, he credited it to her as righteousness. Yeah, I think the whole reason that that little verse in there where it says, she's this is her self-talk. Mm. This is, you know, read it in Genesis 18. It's like God comes to lunch and she's in the tent and and he says you're in a baby. And she's like, at this age, am like, I going to have pleasure? Like, it's yeah. like, and, and so like, that's kind of embarrassing to have that recorded in scripture, you know, her self-talk. And I think the whole reason it's recorded is so that we know they're not having sex. Like this is so far beyond the scope of possibility mm-hmm. in her mind. And look at that amazing faith. It is an act of faith. Yeah. And she is shaped by God's promises. She would not have done it if she did not believe that God was going to keep his promise to her. Yep. Good. This story is so raw. It's so real. It is so and raw. it takes Abram and Sarai off this pedestal yeah. of being these two perfect, heroic, saintly, mm. you know, it, they're just people like us. Yeah. And story transforms us. Yeah. Well, it, I want to go back to yeah. your question because I didn't respond to oh, what, please do, yeah. what takes us to not have license <laughs> in this situation. Yes, yes. Like, why do we then not just live a crazy life because God did it all and so it doesn't matter, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I want to go back to what Lena said in one of our podcasts that has stuck with me. Um, she said, I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of what it means to be loved by God. Mm-hmm. And to me, that like in my mindset, I would have phrased that I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of what it means to love God because I'm more performance oriented and I am more transactional mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in my humanity. And when she said that, that just dropped the penny dropped from my head to my heart. Mm-hmm. That it's not about me learning how to love God. It's about me living into the realization of how much God loves me. And for me, that's that's a big shift. Mm-hmm. And I do think that as we become more mm-hmm. sanctified, which is just a fancy way of becoming more like Christ as we live through our days, for me, that has been a huge shift is that less transactional because I want to perform like in my nature I want to perform for God like look at me I'm I'm doing these things I'm doing my best to like just resting in who God is that's been a huge part of my sanctification and so I'm not interested in license as much anymore because I see how much God loves me and I see that his ways are better than mine and so I don't want to just step off a cliff and do my own crazy lifestyle I want to live into that love relationship that I have with God and I think in this like I could have stopped the sermon Trig in the first like two verses of this when God comes to Abraham and says I am your shield and I am your great reward. Because we remember the chapter before, he's just gone into a war scenario, Mm -hmm. right? And he's been tempted to take the rewards Mm -hmm. of war. Mm -hmm. So he's in this military situation where he's had victory and then he's been been offered all these spoils and he said, I'm not taking any of it. And the very next verse, God says, I am your shield, I am your military protector and I am your great reward, not these spoils. Mm -hmm. It is your walk with me that is everything. Like I, I actually am the object of this relationship like you said earlier rod not just the promises but your relationship your walk with me and so for me i could stop the sermon right there if we could actually put our hands around and our arms around and our lives around the fact that the reward is actually our walk with god not the things that are produced by our walk with god not even the fulfillment of earthly promises or material goods or what we're going to get but actually just walking with god that is the reward. If 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 I could get my brain to live in that space, that would be amazing because that's what it means to scratch the surface of being loved by God. That's Paul's journey. I mean, Saul Paul. Mm. He was such a great Pharisee. Living that performance. Mm-hmm. Do you like me now, God? Mm-hmm. As to the Torah, he could say I was blameless, perfect. And yet, Christ just smote him and he was smote with the love of God in Jesus Christ. Exactly. And that's why he, his prayer in Ephesians is that church that you would know like how deep, how wide, how far, how like this ocean of God's love for us. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the story of the prodigal. <laughs> There's really two prodigal sons, mm-hmm. right? One's, One's apart from the Lord, if if the Father's the Lord figure, right? But mm-hmm. and he's far off. But the other's apart from the Lord, near, right underneath, nearby, his right nose. underneath his nose, in the household, exactly. And one son is consumed by the love of the Father, and the other son is bitter that the love of the Father would consume a son who had wasted his father's wealth on prostitutes. I mean, that's a stunning picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the end of that story, I think you could say only one son is really found. And it's the one that you can look at and say is truly lost. Mm-hmm. He went a long way from his father. Um, but yet, it's really about two lost sons. And the one that's actually home never really gets found. Well, and the tragedy of the older brother there is that what God, or the character, Jesus, the if that's who... Jesus is in the story says to him, son, everything I've had Mm -hmm. has always been yours. And it's like this older son is on this treadmill, not realizing he can just rest in like the plentifulness of everything that the father has. And that's what he doesn't realize. And that's God's corrective to him. If you could just realize that everything I have is yours, like all my, my presence, that I am your reward. If you would have lived into that, you would have rested. I, I see that in Sarah's story too, you know? 
nothing changed about God's promises. She felt excluded. I think when they had Ishmael, she felt like, okay, God made the promise. That's the first parentheses. God kept the promise, and she's on the outside of all that. And it wasn't true, right? Yeah. God never stopped. It was not contingent on her behavior. And I mean, her behavior is so bad. And yet, the promise goes forward. <laughs> it's like Amen. they can't do anything to lose the promise. They can't do anything to gain the promise. All they get to do is respond to the promise, to be the recipients of the promise and live, be shaped by that. Like let that change them. Let that transform them. You know, her laughter goes from bitter to delight. Mm. You know, I know. That's- just imagine holding laughter. <laughs> they must have been laughing their heads off. I know. Here's this. <laughs> 90 year old woman and like are you kidding me this is hilarious <laughs> and who is this nursing, god you know yes. it's like the pictures of nur- can you imagine? i tried I, I i when i was speaking on this uh passage i tried mm-hmm. to find a picture for my slides of a woman with gray hair nurse you know nursing a baby yeah. or holding you know and you just can't find it yeah. it's like it's not there no <laughs> Only this god. is god mm-hmm. this is a reminder too this is not an accident that the first verse of Genesis 16 says, and Sarah was barren. Mm-hmm. Or the first time we're introduced to her, like that she 11. is barren. Yeah. This, this is who God works through. Yeah. This is what God works. He works with barrenness. He works his greatest promises to the most barren person there is. Yeah, the brittle branch on the family tree. Yeah. And he can cause any dead thing to come to life at any moment. He didn't have to wait, right? He chose to wait, I think, to rule out self-reliance, you know? So then let's even keep going in the story. All the examples of barrenness. Tons. I mean, just, yeah. let's, who are they? Anna. Anna's barren. Well, Rebecca, you yep. know? Yeah. And then Rachel and Leah and... Yeah. yeah. So you have that whole story, which mm-hmm. we'll be getting Is into Is it Elizabeth? Later. No. No. Well, in- Elizabeth has Isaac, so... Well, are you talking New Testament? New Testament. Elizabeth? Yeah, Elizabeth yeah. is barren. Yeah. She had John the Baptist. Sorry, I'm yeah, jumping yeah. way, way forward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, no, I'm talking New Testament Elizabeth. John the Baptist's mother, yeah. Yeah. right? But what doesn't it say she was barren? I don't know. I don't well, know if it does. I know he comes and says, she, you know, she's going to have a baby, but I don't know if she had other ones before well, that. It's Yeah, I think I think it, it alludes to yeah. her being barren. Yeah. But the but point anyway, being is that this is how God loves to operate. He loves barren. Yeah, he loves to work barren. His whole story of redemption goes through barren, weak, small, little. But let's take that even further—not just barren in the womb, but barren to do God's work. I mean, yeah. Moses literally goes to God and he's like, "You want me to?" He's got a barren mouth, we might call it. Yeah, he can't even speak, and God's like, "Well, don't worry, I'll put the words mm-hmm. that you need yeah. in you." David's the least of eight brothers, just the shepherd, <laughs> the little guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, this story of barrenness and small and weak. Israel, as a people, are the are the least. Yeah. And God picks them. Why? Because of that. <laughs> Even in terms of their righteousness, God says, "Don't think I picked you because you're righteous. You're stubborn and stiff-necked. Like, you're not that good. Mm-hmm. I picked you because I love you." And I love how Galatians three contrasts the child of Hagar and the child of Sarah. Hmm. Um, Hagar's baby that represents what we can do without God. Sarah's baby represents what only God can do, right? That's that's the story of our salvation. It's not us like, you know, I, I try to picture like if I have this barren branch on my tree, what I want to do is I want to get back to self-reliance. I want to staple up the fruit, you know, like I want to I want to do what I can do, but I can't. I can't produce fruit. That is God's work, whether it's yeah. fruit a, a fruit of the womb, you know, fruit, spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit, like actual fruit. He is the creator of it all, and uh, I'm the recipient. You know, I, 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 that work of the Spirit in my life, if there's some barren area of my life, that is God's work. Yeah. And I love that he chose that. So if you think of him choosing Sarah and the fact that he knows she's barren, right? Mm-hmm. He could have chosen another female that wasn't barren, right. that he could have easily had her had a baby super quickly, um, or he still could have done that with Sarah too, but it would have been less miraculous. He took someone, like you've already said, Shannon, who in her culture felt very devalued and said, I'm going to choose her in order to elevate her. I'm going to give her advantage. 
And to me, that's a beautiful thing mm-hmm. about God too. Like he, he didn't just, because we could say, oh, she, cause I know it's painful now for women that don't have babies. Yeah, yeah. But for in that day and age, it was all encompassing of your value. And so he took someone who was completely devalued and said, I'm going to stamp meaning and life and creation into this space. Mm-hmm. And not just for the sake of my story, but the, for the sake of Sarah. Yeah. For the sake that I could have a relationship with her. Mm-hmm. And then he just records it as a part of the story that we get to learn from, learn about who God is and what kind of people he's looking for and what kind of miraculous things he can do in the midst of our pain and feeling devalued and feeling outside. That's when God can step in mm-hmm. and just fuse, infuse meaning and value into us. So listen to Isaiah 54. Rejoice, barren woman, mm-hmm. you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than are her who has a husband, says the Lord. He turns everything on its tables. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then that, that begs the question, well, what is faith? And I think it's, it's the, the, the courage to believe that despite our weakness, despite our brokenness, despite our lack of ability, despite our lack of talent, despite our lack of appearance, despite our lack of beauty, that God can, will, and rejoices to use us for his purposes. And it's clinging to that promise and that just trusting. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, if we're going to stay in the fruit analogy, which I really like, because you can apply it spiritually, mm-hmm. apply it to the food that we eat, um, to everything that we're talking about here. At the end of the day, I think what we do, we offer God, this is faith, is some good soil. Mm. A good soil is dirt. That's what we give him. But it's still, here's our soil. I mean, Jesus, that's why he did the parable of the four soil, soils. Mm-hmm. Like for, for there still to be fruit, you, you have to give good soil to God. And the soil is our heart. Mm. You know? And There's and work it, to be done. You got to till the soil. You got to pull out the weeds. Yeah. Exactly. So, but at the end of the day, it's about God. This whole thing's about God, what God will do. He's a promise-making God. He's a promise-keeping God. Mm-hmm. Abram like, didn't even know that fully, like we do. No. We and have, look at his faith, right? I know. Yeah. I liked what you said, Shannon, though, that all the promises, all we have then is an opportunity to shape our life around his promises. And we sometimes say around Crossroads that faith is not a noun, like for a lot of us, yeah. we think faith is a noun. It's a set of principles that we ascribe to mentally. But the way you said it is the promises are something we get to arrange our life around and live into. And fa- and in that sense, faith is a verb. Like there's an action of responding to God's promises and arranging our lives according to his faithfulness to us. Mm-hmm. So our faith is really just a, a verb response mm-hmm. to his faith in us and his promises to us. And we get to just respond. And that's to me what faith is, that I get to actually start walking in the direction of his promises, believing that they're going to be, that he's going to be faithful to them, that he's bound to those promises in the way that he was bound, irregardless of how Sarah and Abraham and all of us respond. We can't walk through the pieces. He's done it. And so we just get to arrange our lives around his faithfulness, his goodness, and his mercy and live that out for a watching world. Yeah. Shannon, you get the last word, but before you do... I just want to highlight you Mm. because from the day I met you, you have struck me as someone who loves the word of God. So it's so rich. And and you're not scared of it. Like, and you don't approach the Bible. Like I have to get all the right answers. You're approaching the Bible as this is amazing book from God that we get to study and learn, have our lives changed by. And like I've, you've mined it. Like Mm. you you dig into it and you've learned it and are living it and applying it. So thank you. This is for anybody. Like that's our style at Crossroads, right? Like we call ourselves blue collar scholars. Yeah, no, I don't have a degree, you know, I just, and I don't know all of it, but I'm, I'm just getting started. Right. And there's so much more. We're all just getting started. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the example. So what's your last word? You know, I think, it's interesting that Abraham and Sarah died without having received most of the things that were promised to them. Mm. 
And I think that we make a mistake when we pin our hope on this life, right? Because we too, we have, I, I, I wish I could give you a verse that will promise you, you're going to get that job, you're going to get married, you're going to have the baby. Like we don't, we don't have a lot of tangible promises for the here and now. We have so many promises for the there and then, so many tangible promises mm. of, you know, so many good things to come. And for the here and now, we have rich and precious promises as well. But they're the intangibles. They're the, you know, forgiveness. We have God's presence. We have, you know, hope. And so in this time where the parentheses seem to get wider and wider and wider, and we're asking, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Whatever it is that we're waiting on God for, let's soak our heart in these promises. You know, mm-hmm. let's be shaped by who he is and, and by what he has promised he will do in us. You know, not what we have to perform for him, but we're the recipients in the story. We get to be shaped by this amazing God who says, I will, (laughs) right? I will. I will. Beautiful. That's awesome. Amen. Thanks for being here, Shannon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. This is the locker room where we break down sermons, stories, and scripture for the race of our faith. If this podcast has been serving you, hit follow and the notification bell. That way you can stay up to date on all the new episodes. And do not forget to follow our Instagram if that's your thing, Crossroads Locker Room. We love you, Crossroads. Have a great week. Locker room.